to the People Who Read People podcast. I'm Zachary Elwood. In this episode, recorded on September 15th, 2020, I talked to Dr. Omar Wasso, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Politics at Princeton and who has a PhD in African American Studies from Harvard. Wasso had a paper published earlier this year titled Agenda Seeding How 1960s Black Protests Moved Elites, Public Opinion, and Voting. His research showed that in the 1960s, civil rights related protests and riots, when violent, made public opinion and voting skew more conservative. The conservative shift in voting was in some areas as high as 8%. A little background here in the early 60s, there were mainly peaceful civil rights protests, whereas in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, which led to a good amount of anger and violent riots. This study came out earlier this year and got some press as you'd expect with the protests and riots that have been happening regarding violence by police. His work generated some bad vibes among some people who seemed to interpret his work as saying, don't get angry. One piece about Wiseau was titled, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished for a Princeton Professor. In another incident, a political data analyst named David Shore, who was liberal and had worked for President Obama's re-election campaign, tweeted out a summary of Wiseau's work, which read, Post-MLK assassination race riots reduced Democratic vote share in surrounding counties by 2%, which was enough to tip the 1968 election to Nixon. Nonviolent protest increased Dem vote, mainly by encouraging warm elite discourse and media coverage, end quote. Some people were upset by that tweet. To quote from a piece about this incident written by Jonathan Chait, in certain quarters of the left, Criticizing violent protest tactics is considered improper on the grounds that it distracts from deeper underlying injustice and shifts the blame from police and other malefactors onto their victims. End quote. Long story short, some people accused David Shore of insensitivity and even racism, and the data science and consultancy firm that employed Shore fired him. If you'd like to read more about this incident, I recommend Jonathan Chait's article titled, The Still Vital Case for Liberalism in a Radical Age. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Wiseau about his work and the strategies he used. We also talk about people's reaction to the work and about our current political situation and his thoughts about the future. Off topic a bit, and we don't talk about it in this interview, but Dr. Wiseau has an interesting software background. In 1985, Newsweek named him one of the 50 most influential people to watch in cyberspace. In 1999, he created Black Planet, one of the first major social networking sites. You can check out Dr. Wiseau's website at omarwiseau.com. His last name is spelled W-A-S-O-W. He's on Twitter at O-Wiseau, O-W-A-S-O-W. If you like this interview, you might like my last interview in which I talked to a self-described Antifa who defended some of the violent activities at BLM-related Portland, Oregon protests. If you want to learn more about the People Who Read People podcast, you can go to readingpokertells.video slash blog and get episode summaries and links. Maybe worth mentioning, too, this interview is a bit off-topic from the general theme of my podcast, which is usually focused on reading and predicting behavior. But I saw it as tying in with my last interview, which was about understanding the behavior of violent protesters. Also, I mainly just think this is an important topic right now for the country and want to contribute to the conversation. Okay, here's the interview. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Wasso. Thank you for having me. 
So let's start out with what got you interested in wanting to study the impacts of protests and riots? So when I was growing up in New York in the 80s and 90s, I was struck by how much the kind of my coming of age was defined by, you know, kind of a tough on crime era of politics. And in particular, there was like a contrast between my parents coming of age. They had been activists involved in civil rights activities. And, you know, my father had gone to register voters in Mississippi. And I just couldn't quite figure out, like, how had we gone from the victories of the civil rights era in their coming of age period to this era of law and order in my coming of age? And that question of how we went from civil rights to law and order was just something I'd been kind of looping on since I was a teenager. And at a certain point, after spending about a dozen years working as an entrepreneur in social media, I decided to go back to school uh, to pursue a PhD to try and understand like what led to the rise of law and order politics. Did you have a theory going in about what you'd find when you studied the 1960s era? I didn't have a clear theory, actually. I mean, there were a couple of things I was very interested in. Uh, you know, I was trying to understand the rise of, of the war on drugs and rise of what we now are calling mass incarceration. Um, but this is about 15 years ago. And I understood that there was a kind of post-civil rights rise of law and order. And so it struck me that they were likely linked um, and that at least part of the rise of law and order was a reaction to the success of civil rights. But I didn't have a clear specific theory. And that's in part the gift of going back to school is you can kind of read widely and um, explore lots of different angles. And so that's, you know, in some ways, if I think if I'd had a clearer answer, I might not have gone back to school. Um, I was going back to sort of try and figure out like, it's got to be a better explanation. Oh, so just to clarify, when you say swinging to the law and order side, what exactly are you referring to there? Um, there are a couple of things that that I'm talking about there. So one is in 1964, Barry Goldwater runs for president of the United States. You know, one of the core things he's campaigning on is that he's a law and order candidate. Um, and law and order as a, as a kind of campaign slogan had been popular in the South for decades, but it hasn't, hadn't really become a kind of national campaign slogan. And so it was interesting that Goldwater ran on it, but Goldwater lost massively to Lyndon Johnson. And so it's possible that this kind of bubble of law and order as a slogan might not have carried the day later on, but it did. And in particular, there's a key moment in 1966 uh, in California. Ronald Reagan is running for governor against an incumbent, Pat Brown, who's popular, but Reagan wins and Reagan runs on law and order. And, and so that's now a moment where we see law and order going from being a losing issue to a winning issue for Reagan. Um, and then ultimately, Nixon runs in 1968 for the presidency, again, partly on law and order and wins the presidency. And so part of it is just kind of campaign rhetoric. And, you know, it's, it sort of means different things to different people. But in practice, I think the kind of offer or the promise that's being made by Nixon or Reagan is I am going to support maintaining uh, peace and, you know, sort of backing police against protesters and cracking down on, you know, these these violent uprisings. And, and that's, I think, kind of the core of it. And there's another dimension to it, which is a little more subtle, which is that the success of the civil rights movement kind of destabilizes a social hierarchy, right? So there'd been a kind of stable order, kind of whites on top, blacks on the bottom, and the civil rights movement as an egalitarian movement trying to sort of equalize blacks and whites in the society kind of challenges that that hierarchy. So I think for some people, particularly 
who kind of read it in uh, more racially coded ways, it's about restoring the, the kind of the old social hierarchy. So it's not just about backing law or law enforcement. It's mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. maintaining uh, the social hierarchy. And to be clear, it's a moment where, particularly in as you get later in the 60s and early 70s, there are anti-Vietnam protests. There are mm, other events right. that are perceived to be – there's a sense that the social fabric is tearing. There also right. uh, are assassinations of the Kennedy brothers and then Martin Luther King. So there's a lot that's going on that's unsettling in the society. Um, but among the most powerful is a sense that there's this, you know, this kind of movement – this insurgency, this African American insurgency against the old order. So law and order, I think, for some people, literally means like you know we just want things to be more peaceful. But for other people, it means we're going to kind of restore the old racial order. Right. It has has different connotations in different contexts. But yeah, like you said, it's maybe worth pointing out that with all the violence and, and assassinations, yeah. it wasn't just a race thing or even a political thing. There were many people feeling like things were falling apart at, at certain points in, in time. Yeah. I, I looked at one survey, and this was before the 1968 election, presidential election, and uh, people were asked, you know, do you feel like law and order has broken down in society? And something like 80% of Americans said law and order has broken down. So mm. that's – America is less polarized then than now, but, but still 80% is a very high percentage. So there is a sense broadly of – things being a little, you know, something's kind of out of control. And and it's also important to note that in that era, the protests that escalate to violence are, can, in some cases, are just vastly larger than what we're seeing now. So, for example, um, in the protests that have violence in Los Angeles in 65, there are an estimated 3,000 incidents of arson. Um, there are about 4,000 people arrested. The police and National Guard shoot dozens of uh, citizens. So it, it's, you know, these are almost kind of low-grade civil war kinds of events. And and that reflects both the, you know, kind of anger that people have ag- against Jim Crow and segregation and also the degree to which the state response was often, you know, quite repressive. And so, so that's part of, I think, what's going on when people are unsettled by what's happening. It's, it's, it's at a different scale than what we're seeing now. It also seems like there's different categories of things because it seems like we've become so desensitized to some things like mass shootings, for example. So like, even though people were bothered by, you know, for example, assassinations and shootings back in the in the 60s, it almost seems like now we're just so desensitized to that aspect and, you know, more sensitive maybe to other areas that haven't happened in a while. But it just seems like, you know, you can, you can imagine those ma- the mass shootings that we deal with now happening back in the 60s and just people losing, you know, losing their minds. And now it's just become so everyday for us. That's right. I mean, I sometimes think about it as a, a kind of, you know, if you worked at a slaughterhouse, you could go and slaughter animals and have a burger for lunch and that wouldn't be a big deal. But if you're somebody who has, you know, is is a, is a civilian who doesn't spend time in a slaughterhouse, you know, you might be scared straight from eating meat for months if you saw, you know, the slaughtering of animals. And and similarly, right. you know, as you're saying, we kind of habituate to violence, and so or or more generally to death. Right? We're in a moment right now where there are approximately a thousand people a day dying of COVID, but. That has now just become a kind of background, right. you know, hum in our society. Whereas one shooting in a protest in Portland 
uh, can dominate the news for several days, right? And that's right. and so if we were kind of strict utilitarians, we might say, well, the thousand deaths is certainly more important than the one death, but that's that's not really how, as you note, you know, human psychology or the media work. Right. Then you've got, you know, civilian deaths of of people that the US government has killed overseas and that, you know, it's like there's so many things that right. depending on what, what the winds are that, that we could be uh, yeah, focusing on. So if you had to sum up your findings in, in like a, a layman using layman language, how, how big yeah. an impact would you say that violent protests and riots have? So I think it's useful to kind of begin with just like a simple question of why do people protest, right? And it's like there's some injustice and people are engaging in action, taking to you know, the public square or the, or the streets to try and raise awareness about that, that issue. And what we see, you know, across American history, right? I mean, this is like in the First Amendment, right? There's a kind of uh, you have a right to, to assemble is that this kind of embodied speech showing up and 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 trying to you know raise the profile of your your issue is, you know, it's a, it's a kind of funny thing, right? Because almost nobody directly observes a protest. And so the way protests often work is through the media. And what I found in my research is that protests that were big and peaceful could be effective, but uh, oftentimes the media didn't really pay that much attention to a protest in which there wasn't much drama. I, I, there's a, I was reading a history of uh, news, and there's this one quote from a reporter who says, this unprecedented picket line in Hattiesburg, Mississippi uh, is a dull story. Blood and guts are news, right? And so violence is a very powerful way of capturing the media's attention. But the challenge, and this is what I find later in my work, is that you know the, the people who are uh, instigating violence are often pr- portrayed in the media as the bad guy. And so when protesters are largely peaceful, and you know you see the uh, segregationist police shooting fire hoses at protesters or uh, sticking dogs on protesters, you get very sympathetic media coverage, uh, oftentimes nationally and even internationally. And so when the state is engaging in violence against protesters uh, who are perceived to be peaceful, it helps the protest movement, although individual protesters are obviously at risk of injury and trauma and death. Conversely, when protesters engage in more aggressive resistance to that kind of state repression, and you have either protester-initiated violence or both protester-initiated violence and state violence together, that gets covered more as a crime story. It's not a story mm-hmm. about a redress of rights. It's a story about crime and riots. Um, and that tends to move uh, public opinion into, as we were talking about, kind of a concern about law and order. So now to come to the heart of your question, right? So how much is a protest moving, say, voting behavior? What I found was that nonviolent protests increased, if you were near, within about 100 miles of a nonviolent protest with the assumption that gets covered on the media and kind of helps shape public opinion, that those counties that were near nonviolent protests vote about one to two percentage points more liberally and counties that were near protests that escalate to violence, but again, protester-initiated violence here, I find those counties vote about two to eight percentage points more conservatively. Mm. So two to eight, that's a pretty big uh, percentage point, yeah. Um, so you used a pretty clever idea for figuring out how to study how the protests affected these different regions, different local areas. You used the weather. And can you talk a little bit about that and how you arrived on that solution? Yeah. So, you know, a classic thing that almost everybody has heard, right, is that, uh, you know, correlation is not the same thing as causation. And so in some of my analyses, I 
make, a, I think, a, a pretty strong case that I'm comparing in the initial analyses a county to itself over time. And we find that, you know, that positive relationship between nonviolent protests and more voting for the Democratic Party and, and a kind of conservatizing effect of protests uh, that escalate to violence. Because I'm carrying, comparing a county to itself, it controls for a bunch of things that are kind of the traits of that county, plus I'm controlling for a bunch of other things. But even with that, it's still hard to know, are you really picking up a causal effect of protests? And so what I do, so what we really want, if we could, you know, if we had godlike powers, we would want to randomly assign protests to different counties and then sort of see like a medical study, did the counties that had a protest, you know, behave differently uh, in an election than the ones that didn't have a protest? And we can't do that, obviously. But what I do use is rainfall, where there's a lot of evidence, uh, both I find in kind of archival newspaper accounts, but also in other social science, that when it rains, intuitively, fewer people go outside, and that dampens gatherings, everything from Tea Party gatherings to, uh, you know, protests in the 60s. And so by using rainfall, I'm able to kind of approximate random assignment of protests. In particular, I focus on a set of violent protests that follow Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in April of 1968. So there's there's a brief period in April uh, following his assassination, where there are about 137 protests that include protester-initiated violence. And I basically use rainfall to predict whether a protest happens. So you can think of rainfall as being like a coin toss, randomly assigning some places get the protest, some places don't. And then I see in the places that had more rainfall, where there was less likelihood of being a protest, do they vote more uh, like they we expect given you know their, their past voting behavior um, and the ones that had less rainfall uh, where we expect more likelihood of a protest, do they seem to vote more conservatively? And, or, you know, it could be that they vote more liberally, like I'm running a regression here and I don't have a, a, you know, I'm just kind of testing which direction the effect might go or might there be no effect. And what I find is that in places where there's less rainfall, which is to say more protest activity, those places vote, again, about eight percentage points, six to eight percentage points more conservatively in 1968 than the ones that have more rainfall. It's possible that rainfall you know, is predicting voting, rainfall in April is predicting voting in November, um, but the most obvious, you know, through some other channel, mm-hmm. but the most mm-hmm. obvious thing is it's happening through protest activity. And I do, I do some other robustness checks to show that it's, it's, it's very unlikely to be anything but protest activity. Interesting. Yeah. Was that an original idea or did you see other studies that use the weather like that? So it's in in economics, uh, using rainfall like uh, as what's called an instrument as a a kind of uh, a way to approximate random assignment has been used a fair amount. And then there are two economists, um, last names Margot and Collins, who used this approach of rainfall uh, around King's assassination to estimate a kind of a causal effect of uh, violent protest. So I can't take credit for it. I mean, I, there are extensions I did to try and kind of build on that approach. And so I, I still <laughs> am proud of the work I did. But but Margot and Collins get the, get, get the credit for that, that idea of using rainfall around King's assassination. So compared to being able to study the local effects back then, do you think now with so much national news coverage and such a fast, continuous news cycle now that it's possible to do that kind of study now? It's a great question. And I, I think I think your intuition is right that, that our politics are increasingly nationalized. And so, you know, an event in Portland um, 
might have some influence nationally or an event in you know Minneapolis clearly has had uh, an influence on national politics. Like Fox News playing Portland constantly, putting that's Portland. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and so so I think there's part of this is uh, just that that we have a national media and that some of these you know uh, and also uh, we have social media that sort of amplifies kind of local things nationally. Um, and at the same time, I still think there are local effects. I mean, so I've done some experiments around events and have found that when I look locally, I get, um, you know, people's attitudes change when there's been a local event. But if you look outside that local area, their attitudes don't seem to change, right? So I think there's there may be something that's kind of visceral about being somewhat close to an event, right? If you were in Minneapolis, you might have felt sympathy for, you know, either the officer or uh, George Floyd. That's like, you know, those are local people. And uh, you also might be someone who goes out in protests, but you also might be somebody who's freaked out about the police station being going up in flames. And so I think there's just something very visceral about proximity. But I also think you're right that almost certainly the dynamics have changed partly because our media are more national. It's a random thought I just had. Did you read the book by uh, Seth uh, Stevens Davidovich called Everybody Lies about studying Google Trends by any chance? Um, I haven't read that book, but I've read a number of his papers and uh, and seen him talk and, and, and like his work. It seems like you could study something, some local effects there too, like getting a sense of the concerns of people locally by searching for riot related news or protest you know the the word choice it seems like you could probably find something there too yeah just around that's exactly right there's a paper that i was just looking at today by an economist who was i think at arizona state university he used people's searches on google and found that where people were searching i think words included riot i don't remember what else that people were going to local stores at lower rates in other words, they were shopping mm. outside of their home less often. Um, and his intuition, and you know, I didn't look deeply into the paper, so I'm not in a position to say much about it as a, as credible or not. But the but your intuition that um, that that Google searches would be a good way to get at this is right, and um, and it would also help us get the local variation, which is sort of core to what I look at in the 1960s. And again, there's some evidence in his work that we are seeing local effects. That there there is a, a way in which it, it's going to vary. And actually, his point in the paper, which is is not inconsistent with your point about Fox, is it might be that the local effects are actually not about that you're near the protest, but that maybe you're in a place where it's just getting hyped up more or you're you mm-hmm. know, more anxious. Like there's this, there are these weird data points from the 2016 election where some of the people who are most concerned about immigration from Latin America are in places like, you know, Maine. And it's just mm-hmm. sort of like, <laughs> what, what, what's that about? You know, and I think if, uh, if you're in a place that's maybe very homogenous and it's an older population, that might be more unsettling than if you're uh, in Texas or California. California, where you know it's just, it's just much more common, and so so the fear that people might have may not be directly related to the actual you know any real threat. Right. Um, but but you're right that that Google search will help you identify some of that variation. 
Yeah, and like you said, I think yeah, social media feels like a big accelerator of various things these days. To me, it's a it's a big cause of of polarization and and anger and kind of alienation in general. And it just seems like yeah, the the digital world has become such a kind of a hall of mirrors of allowing people in the Midwest to be really scared about you know what's happening in Portland, which was kind of a you know wouldn't have happened so much in a few decades ago. I don't think <laughs> it's it's so it's interesting. Yes, I mean I think you, you're you're absolutely right. But there's I have a colleague uh, and and Andy Guess um, who's done interesting work on social media news consumption, and it turns out you know you're you're you know with a podcast and and other things sort of technically savvy, and you know I think of myself as somewhat technically savvy too. It turns out most people don't change the default page on their browser. And so that means that a huge percentage of people's online news consumption is like Yahoo News and Microsoft News, and that actually only a relatively small percentage of people are the hyper-partisan news consumers. And they certainly matter because they are influential and they, the loudest. Uh, their yeah. voices are louder. Um, but But it's also easy to miss how much that you know, it's actually not, um, you know, MSNBC and Fox are not defining, uh, you know, what people are talking about as much as we mm-hmm, might think right. and social media. And actually one other you know, sort of funny detail, I have another colleague who's done work on this and it turns out the, the real effect of cable news and cable more generally is not that uh, some people, you know, watch MSNBC and Fox as much as it is that when you move from an era where you have three channels and if you turn on the TV at 7 p.m., your only choice is news to an era of cable where there are hundreds of choices and now I can watch sports or, you know, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, is that in the pre-cable era, there were a huge number of people who were disinterested in politics but became more engaged because they watched the evening news because that's all they could watch at that hour. And as you increase choice, there's this huge sort of center of people who are not very politically engaged, who essentially drop out of consuming news and in many ways drop out of politics. And so there's this kind of hollowing effect that the people who are left consuming a lot of news are the partisans, but it's because the nonpartisans or the disengaged, you know, are, are, are being entertained. Yeah. And then I think that's a big factor too in the, in the social media playing a role in, in polarization because it be, just by giving the perception of polarization it, it leads to each side becoming more more polarized but anyway that's a that's a whole other topic we uh, <laughs> yeah sorry I, because my colleagues have written on this I get a little excited no I, I love talking about the social media stuff yeah. the, well so, so one other thing that's important about social media is you know if we think about the origins of the this this kind of moment of protests and you know why um, do we have? Did we have this wave of unprecedentedly large protests uh, you know, across the country? And it's really the video of George Floyd's killing that sparks this. And that video is taken. The, the one in particular that that really uh, mobilizes people is seventeen-year-old teenager Darnella Frazier, who has the presence of mind to bear witness to this act of state violence and document this moment. And she, you know, from what I understand, posts the video to Facebook at like two in the morning. And she can't have anticipated how radically this would alter what what would be kind of front and center in American politics for the months to come. And so there's a way in which in the 1960s, if 
you were an activist who wanted to try and uh, you know elevate the public's awareness about an issue, you had to you had to try and organize for ABC to be there to document it, and people were doing things like scheduling protests at 10 a.m. so that footage could be flown to NBC in New York in the for the evening broadcast. I mean, there's, there was a lot of strategy that went into how do we get the traditional media to cover our protest? And now anybody who has a smartphone is in a position to do that kind of citizen journalism that can very powerfully change the national conversation. Right. And I think there's there's a lot to say there too, because there's positive and negative aspects about that, because without a filter, people will overreact. And we've seen you know cases of that where like the Minneapolis incident, where there were protests and riots based on basically fake news about officers killing someone. And then there's so many cases of that, but I think it's important to see that there's both positive and negative aspects to not having a filter and having everyone be in kind of, you know, echo chambers in definitely, a way. Definitely. Uh, we, 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 have to, we have to deal with both of those effects if we want to survive as a society. Yeah. So, I mean, I think th- th- that's a really important point that there are, um, I mean, a top line clearly, um, you know, positive and negative effects of these technologies. And I mean, it's sort of crazy for me to think that like the internet emerges out of this uh, defense department project. How do we build a communication system that's resilient to nuclear attack? And it's enormously successful at building a resilient communications network, but it turns out to create all whole new channels of uh, opportunity for foreign governments to attack us, right? So whether it's, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Chinese uh, hackers getting into either uh, corporate or government, uh, uh, you know, databases and intellectual property or, you know, kind of Russian disinformation campaigns um, and, mm-hmm. you know, things like mm-hmm. WikiLeaks. And, and like so so we weirdly kind of built the system that is now being used to attack us and it uh, was designed to be something to protect us. So that's sort of one crazy example of what you're describing, this kind of dual way in which technology operates. And then the second thing I hear you emphasizing, which is is, is really important, is that we, we, you know, we're in this moment where it used to be that there were a bunch of gatekeepers who helped to kind of make, there were real problems with that, right? I mean, like part of the challenge for activists in the 1960s was how do we get our issues on the national stage? And in many cases, the media paid no attention to the concerns of black people. And so the reason you engaged in protests, the reason people like, um, you know, King and Rosa Parks and others engaged in resistance to Jim Crow was to draw attention you know, force the media to pay attention, right? So those gatekeepers could be a barrier to more a more democratic society. But the the flip side is the gatekeepers can also be a kind of stabilizing force. And so, like, there's a like great a book, filter uh, of bad. Yeah, they filter out bad uh, overreactions. You know, they that's one good thing about them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, like, uh, there's a book, uh, "How Democracies Die." which points out that one of the core ways in which political parties have helped democracies maintain some stability is that they work to kind of keep fringier candidates off the ballot. And part of what we've seen in the last, you know, call it 10 to 20 years as the internet has become both more pervasive in our society and, 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 and you know, an important alternate channel for people to get attention 
is that it's, you know, there's a, a number of QAnon candidates now who are winning seats in the, um, in the House. And that reflects not only the rise of social media and, and, you know, the pervasiveness of things like conspiracy theories, but it also reflects the weakening of parties' ability to act as gatekeepers. So that, the, the, you know, you have an old set of institutions that aren't as able to, you know, keep out marginal voices. That's a good thing in the 1960s with black activists, but it's potentially um, unsettling now when you have people who are, you know, kind of operating with a, all sorts uh, of groups. Yeah, you know, sort of extreme conspiracies about how the world works. That's what uh, worries me about social media is it's kind of like a technology that I don't think the human brain is really ready for in the sense that it, it triggers so many things in us and, and, and kind of acts in a a society fracturing way, you know, even though it obviously has positive aspects too, and, and as any communication tool does. But yeah, okay, let's uh, get back to the. Uh, well, I guess we're still on the topic. Of <laughs> yeah. It, but uh, you had talked a little bit about this, and I think it's important to point out, you know, how strategic and thought out a lot of the civil rights protests and campaigns were. You know, for example, you talk about this in your paper, yeah, and it, it's pretty well known. But protesters. Uh, civil rights protesters did things like staged protests near prominent media outlets to be able to get more press. They carefully staged things so that the protesters would be able to remain peaceful, but would spark obviously bad or uh, brutal overreactions from cops or other authorities. Uh, all these things to help win points in the public eye, you know, so that people would clearly see that they were being treated unfairly, which, you yeah. know, helps win sympathy. And another example of this is, which I still don't think is very widely known that, you know, Rosa Parks was part of a concerted planned activist effort. And I think many Americans still are under the impression that she was just a random tired woman who basically didn't get up one day, you know, right. which actually I think was what I was taught in school, if I remember correctly, which was, and when I learned the truth, I was like, oh, that's crazy. How come you know, <laughs> right. we, we didn't, we, we weren't taught that. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's all this, this hidden strategy in, in these things and why the were so successful. And, and I think it plays in, you know, into your, your study, because when I look at uh, a lot of these things going on, like in Portland, it just, the thing that bugs me is it just seems so unplanned out and chaotic. And, you know, I, I interviewed a, a Portland Antifa BLM protester and he, you know, he confirmed that it basically was chaotic. There was no like coherent strategy. And, you know, I think that's what, that's what, that's what bothers me most of all. It just seems to me that, one, the, it seems like the laziest way to try to affect change. And two, it just seems like intuitively to me and also reading things like your study, it, it just seems very possible that they're hurting their cause and, and, and hurting, just putting uh, society in, in some uh, theoretically dangerous situation, especially with, you know, Trump in office right now. But uh, all, that was a long speech, but. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. But I think, I think it, it speaks to the kind of the core tension. So, you know, the way I think about this is, Every activist out on the street is kind of juggling two core motivations. One is to express their anger, their frustration about some injustice, but the other is to try and kind of change the larger world. And often those are, those can be intention, right? That like if you're just angry about something, you're not really focused on what other people think. And conversely, if you're really focused on persuading other people, it's, you sometimes have to put your own feelings uh, second, right? Which is like, can be really hard. And the moment we're in is one where, you know, people are seeing videos of somebody shot in the back, you know, and it's like, it's like, it's really, it can be very enraging stuff. And then the other moment we're in is one in which you don't need 
a central organizing body like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to bring people together and organize an event, right? It can happen you know, as quickly as a few text messages and thousands of people might converge on a, on a particular location. And so the challenge, you know, the gift of that, what, what a scholar named Zeynep uh, Tufeci calls uh, this kind of network public square is that like, it's possible for a, you know, these highly spontaneous movements to emerge and mobilize really quickly and that's very powerful, but in the absence of a kind of a centralized organizer, it also means there's much greater chance of, you know, some degree of chaos. It also in international context, not so much in the US, means that there's no clear leader to negotiate with the state in some cases. Um, so organizing becomes hard when organizing is in some ways coming after the social movement, not uh, before. And obviously, in some cases, like with Black Lives Matter protests, there are people who've been organizing for years. So I don't want to suggest that they're mutually exclusive. But protests in the internet era around the world are now, they can mobilize much more quickly, but they also are more at risk for being kind of a loose network that can be uh, both chaotic, also infiltrated by outsiders and, and kind of harder to manage. You know, and I think your example of Portland is a helpful one, um, and we could look at other places too, but one of the core lessons of my work is that the media play this really powerful role in kind of shaping the public perception of a movement. And when people are on the ground and, you know, police are potentially tear gassing people or shooting rubber bullets, that kind of repression understandably makes people often quite angry and then they and you can get this escalation but what happens in the media is that that tends to get covered as um you know a clash right and it sort of shifts the focus away from a concern about rights and so if i were you know somebody on the ground trying to help activists think about you know how do we how can we be most effective again people Partly, you have to just protect themselves, and um, you know, if you're angry, that that you've got to you've got to deal, you got to you got to have a way to express your anger. But but I also would want people to kind of think like a camera and try to imagine how is this going to be, what is this going to look like on the evening news tomorrow? And that doesn't mean you have to change your politics, and it doesn't mean you have to change the kind of demands you're making, but it does mean as people, as you know, did in the 1960s, think about what are the ways in which we can stage this event? I mean, uh, John Lewis, uh, you know, congressman who just passed, talked about what we're doing is dramatizing injustice. And so the challenge for organizers, the challenge for protesters is to figure out what can you do that helps to elevate the larger injustice in this society to kind of draw attention to the ways in which what's happening on the ground is not what we uh, idealize, right? You know, we, uh, a fair and equal society is in sharp contrast to, you know, this image of a man uh, being killed before our eyes by an officer. How do you draw attention to those, those tensions between our ideals and the reality and, and keep the, the country's focus on that? And to the extent that protester actions such as certain kinds of violence by protesters, to the extent that becomes the story, it tends to shift away from the profound injustice of something like George Floyd being killed. To your point about, you know, when there's conflict initiated on both sides, uh, like in Portland, for example, for a personal example, when I look at things in Portland, you know, people share clips of like, oh, look at these 
these overreactions by cops. Look at these bad things the cops are doing. But to me, it's it's hard to distinguish what is going on because I, for one, the video is hard to parse sometimes. Two, I don't know what the protesters did right before that video. You know, so it, it, it makes sense that it, it makes everything much harder to parse. And, and and if you're if you don't know, then it just seems like well the protesters are creating chaos and I can't make a good judgment either way of what's, what's right or what's not. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, and at, you know, at the heart of it, there's a kind of double standard, which I know is maddening for a lot of people. You know, what I observe in the 1960s and I think is still largely true today is that protesters need to be almost angelic to be in the kind of position of being a good guy. And that's a very it's exceedingly high standard it's again it's it's in many ways entirely unfair but when you have an image that is you know a young person being hit with a fire hose uh, as happened in the 1960s or uh, John Lewis being beaten on the Edmund Pettus bridge having his head cracked open by uh, a, a segregationist cop those images of a clear good guy and a clear bad guy do a lot of work and is it reasonable to expect John Lewis not to fight back? No. As, 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 as Malcolm X says, I don't call it self-defense. I call it intelligence, intelligence, right? Like we we would expect you to resist somebody beating you up. And so it's, it is entirely unreasonable that John Lewis has to get up there, get beat up and not fight back. But the genius of that logic is in suffering in the way he does – and doing it in a way that is, you know, again, captured in the media, it reveals, as you said, the brutality of segregation. One of the remarkable things about the Bloody Sunday March in 1965 is that it's broadcast uh, on a Sunday afternoon and the, the, um, the, the, it interrupts a documentary about the Nuremberg war crimes uh, in Germany. And so we cut from, you know, again, kind of good guys and bad guys, right? Here are these evildoers of World War II being tried. And then we cut to images of uh, vigilantes and segregationist troopers beating up peaceful protesters, right? And the, the, the kind of cognitive shock in America was so great that people around the country were moved to come to Selma and, and, and march with, with Lewis and King and others. So it is is entirely unreasonable to say you need to make yourself a target of violence. Um, it is unreasonable to say you have to be almost angelic to be a good guy. But if people can pull that off, it also can be incredibly powerful for throwing into sharp contrast the injustice, the larger injustice in the society that activists are trying to make the world, make the country pay attention to. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, I think uh, I'm probably not the only one who, who sees these things in different categories, like when there's a, an event that sparks a lot of, you know, angry, uh, immediately angry uh, rioting or, or looting or whatever, that I don't have much judgment of that. Like that doesn't even bother me. I think what the, the part that bothers me, like for the, the Portland situation, for example, is, you know, it's, it's the people that think that are actually under the impression that they are doing something effective, you know, in their minds that they are strategizing and they, they are strategizing correctly. And I, and I put that in a different category than the, it's the people just having the angry outbursts. And then there's the people who think they are uh, taking some strategic approach. And, and those are two different. Um, and that's, I think one of the, the sharpest critiques of my work has been that I'm, I'm saying 
people need to kind of be strategic when in fact, if you're angry and on the street, like you're not, you're not thinking about, you know, the evening news, you're not thinking about a voter in November. And is it even fair? Yeah, that's not what you're saying at all. Well, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's something I have to sit with. And, 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 and I think part of what I would say is there are, there are even, even in these movements that are, you know, kind of spontaneous and kind of internet, um, uh, driven, there are leaders and organizers and people who have a larger platform. And what those people say, I think really matters in terms of helping mm-hmm. other people on the ground make decisions about, you know, does it make sense to light this car on fire or not? Does it make sense to, you know, smash a window or not? Does it make sense to engage in some other kind of violent resistance? And so, so I think clearly, even if we say on the ground there's a lot of chaos and maybe we're not going to hold any individual person accountable although i'm 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 comfortable with saying people make choices and they have agency and they they can they, they are these things aren't just happening at random but but certainly people who are in positions of leadership who are speaking out who are writing they are in a position to sort of say this is what's more effective you know for our cause and then i think there's a kind of another dimension to this question which is it, it's not just um about i mean let me let me come at this from kind of a slightly different angle which is like across history we've seen violence be effective in lots of contexts right so whether you're talking about the american revolution or the civil war or the boston tea party um or any number of you know violent insurgencies around the world like Violence can be an effective way to get what you want. And so if you are trying to advance an issue, you know, it might be that that in some case, you know, I mean, to, to give a, uh, I think one of the you know most morally compelling ones, right? Nelson Mandela is sent to prison because he's part of an armed insurgency against the apartheid government. Right. And or there are, uh, you know, there's there's violent, there's armed resistance under the Holocaust uh, by, you know, there's Jewish resistance to to the Nazis that's armed resistance. Right. And so in those kinds of cases, we would say that seems like, you know, a pretty moral uh, claim to violence as as a as a way to advance your cause. And the, the slight difference in the U.S. case is there's there's a really vibrant media. And yes, the white majority media had largely ignored the concerns of African-Americans. But when things happen, they start to cover these events and, um, you know, when the protests happen. And so, so because there's essentially a functioning civil society, even if the South is only semi-democratic, it means that you have this other channel with which to make change. And so then the tension becomes, okay, as activists, do we want to go the Jewish resistance to the Holocaust route? Do we want to go the American Revolution route? Or do we go the let us wage a kind of war of ideas and persuasion in the press? And it turns out that that can be a very effective technique. And what I find is it, it you, you get a lot of what you want. You know, they, they dismantle the civil rights movement, dismantles Jim Crow. It's one of the great uh, accomplishments of the 20th century. And they do it in a way that has a minimum, I would argue. I mean, the, 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 there are clearly people who are injured and killed who are civil rights activists. But I think it would be hard to imagine a less bloody revolution than the kind of war waged by civil rights activists on Jim Crow and the dismantling of Jim Crow. So so it's a very powerful way of forcing change and minimizing the kind of um, bloodshed and and retribution that often happens in, in, in more violent conflicts. That's what scares me about this kind of, you know, almost normalization of, of street violence. We've kind of feels like we've entered into more recently. And um, it feels to me like the lead up to, um, obviously it's different stuff, but it feels similar to what I've read about the lead up to, to Nazi Germany and the normalization of street violence. And I might be being a bit 
hysterical about that, but um, no, I think I think I see some parallels. Yeah, I think it's 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 an important thing to you know my parents, uh, my grandparents rather on my father's side, you know, fled the Nazis, and so it, it's it's for me that's uh, you know that's it, that's in my life, I'm not in my lifetime, but it's in my family's lifetime. And so I think that does need to be something we hold as a, a real genuine threat. And we do see uh, a, you know, a, a significant amount of far right violence uh, in this country, ranging from, on the one hand, events like the, you know, Oklahoma bombing, um, the Murrow building, and uh, there are other kinds of events that, you know, the uh, shooting um, by Dylan Roof of nine you know, totally welcoming, loving uh, churchgoers in in a in a church, right? And then that kind of essentially kind of domestic terrorism is does seem to be a, a rising threat, and um, and and you know, particularly unsettling is prominent public officials, the president most importantly. Uh, are often kind of stirring the pot, increasing division, and praising the acts, you know, people engaging in more um, violent uh, vigilante acts. So, so it, it it is unsettling, and at the same time, I take some confidence in that at least so far we've seen some prominent military leaders distance themselves uh you know after for example the crackdown in lafayette square where trump had this you know photo op and attacked uh brought the military into attack peaceful protesters that military leaders distance themselves from that and are i think trying to not get co-opted by that kind of activity but it's 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 you know i think it's 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 a permanent threat in any democracy and so it's something we should always be vigilant about yeah, and to, and to be more clear, maybe I I am afraid. Like one thing I'm afraid of is the normalization of of uh, you know liberal uh, anti cop kind of protests. Not just what they're doing, but how it will lead the right wing to respond. You know, and in the same way, if I was in the '60s and felt like there was too much uh, too much violent protests and riots, I would be afraid of worst case scenarios involving what the government would do. You would do. You know, that, that that's where I'm at now. Where it's like. One, I don't think it's effective strategizing, and I'm kind of disheartened that so many people make excuses for some of the more violent militant stuff. And that's a one case. And then my second fear is, you know, what it will lead to in, in a in a in a broader sense. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to make that more. Yeah. Clear. No. No. And I think I think what you know another thing I think people have struggled with a little bit with my research is this idea that there are people who both care about rights and equality and care about uh, order and are you know don't want to see rising levels of uh, disorder or violence and so you know the simplest way to kind of illustrate that in the 1960s is that in 1964 Lyndon Johnson has just passed the Civil Rights Act and then wins the presidency in a landslide uh, but by 1968 the you know as I've mentioned earlier like Nixon wins at running on Law and Order and in order for that to you know for that switch to happen, there have to be voters who were Johnson voters in '64 and Nixon voters in '68. And in, in statistical analyses that are not in the paper, but that I've been working on this summer, the protests. You know, one of the things that's a really good predictor of whether somebody switches from Johnson to Nixon is their attitudes about protests. And if you think hmm. that the way 
you know, that, 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 that we need to bring down the full force of the law against violent protests, you're much more likely to switch from Johnson to Nixon. Um, and, and that's actually not true in 1968 about attitudes about the Vietnam War. And interestingly, it's not true about attitudes about the civil rights movement, that if you have, whether you have more positive or negative views of the civil rights movement doesn't predict switching from Johnson to Nixon. It's really attitudes about urban unrest, violent protest that predicts whether people are switching. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by some of the bad reactions to your work. It seems like a lot of times these days, people take things in the worst possible interpretation. I mean, to me, you weren't saying, like you said, you weren't saying, don't get angry. You were saying for the people that want to strategize about these things, here are things to keep in mind. Yeah. You know, it's not, yeah. and that's two separate things. You, you're not going to stop people from being angry. People are going to be angry. It's, it's like, it's what do you do when you get down to strategizing about making change? That's a good distinction. Yeah. Seems like there's quite a few factors present that play a role in the how these protests and and things have played out, and also in people's reaction to your work. It seems like there's you know factors like Trump being president, obviously, and that causing people to be you know liberals to be much more angry, uh, understandably. Uh, there's the white guilt issue, and which is generally present, but that's been increased by Trump and, and various racial tensions. And then you've got COVID-related financial desperation and anxiety, which I think has kind of elevated the, le- the level of activity at these things. Do, do you see those factors being present in, in, mm-hmm. in all of these things? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a classic problem in any protest is organizing people, coordinating them. And if everybody has a different schedule where it's like, I got to pick up my kids at three and I've got, uh, you know, uh, uh, my shift starts at six, it becomes harder to get a lot of people to show up in one place at one time in March. Um, And so one of the things that I think contributed to the dramatic national and actually international, um, you know, 10, I think by the estimate was over 10,000 protests in the US and about 9,000 internationally all around Black Lives Matter is that, that in some ways our schedules uh, were a little bit more free that allows people who to kind of, you know, who might've been angry before, but had to go to work are able to kind of hit the street and make their voice heard. The other thing that I think is really powerful about this moment, that's a little bit an echo of Emmett Till being lynched in 1955 or Rodney King being beaten in 1992 is that the images of George Floyd were especially shocking, that seeing him cry for his mother, seeing the utterly callous indifference of Derek Chauvin, uh, Officer Chauvin resting his full body weight on Floyd's neck, like that was shocking in a way that I think angered people and moved them to action. And yes, I think you're right that there's a kind of uh, Trump fatigue or or fatigue isn't even the right word because that suggests people are kind of going to uh going to kind of fade uh, off yeah. settle down it's uh it's a, it yeah it's a, it's a it's a trump uh you know disgust where you know the sort of uh, a large portion of the public is just through with him and he just kind of keeps stirring the pot and so in that moment i think all of that comes together and 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 helps to channel uh, people's anger about racial inequality into mobilization and um, directing, you know, and 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 a kind of counter punch to to Trump's uh, often very violent rhetoric and aggression. Yeah, I mean, conservatives like to mock the idea of Trump derangement syndrome. You know, like the idea that liberals have gone crazy in response to Trump. Which, you know, I, in a sense, I, I think it's true in the sense that it is an understandable reaction to having such a horrible, unstable leader. Uh, there's several ways in, in which this is exaggerated our 
our responses to to several things, you know, both in in good and bad ways. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, no. I think there is an anger about norms being. I mean, I think part of what's hard for our country, but more generally, um, the people who went out to mobilize is that there's. I mean, at, at its core, a protest is a, is a way of saying politics as usual is no longer acceptable and business as usual is no longer acceptable. And we are engaging in uh, a disruption of the status quo to try and move the world closer to the, the way we dream it could be. And Trump's violation of norms, you know, violation of laws often go unchecked by the Senate, by things like inspector generals. There's, there's there's just all of this apparatus that is supposed to kind of keep our government operating within certain rules. And, at, at, and so I think part of what you're uh, rightly observing in terms of these protest movements is while the core of it is absolutely about trying to advocate for a reform of police and and emphasizing the kind of uh, you know the moral claim that is Black Lives Matter, I think there's another element of it, which is the the kind of norm violation and and to be frank you know law violation that we see uh, going on in Washington it, it, it needs to have a response. It's, it's kind and of maddening. Protests are a kind of democratic counteraction to authorities. Yeah, and the protester that I interviewed um, for the last episode, he, he kind of confirmed that when he talked about. One one of the reasons people, some of the people out there, obviously, you know, everyone's got their different reasons, but some of the reasons people are out in Portland is they think that they're fighting a encroachment of a white nationalist fascist government, you know, which to me is a very exaggerated, unrealistic way to look at things. But you know, it, it kind of ties into many people are responding to these to Trump related things. It's it's all tied in together in, in various ways for for different people. Yeah. You know, it goes back to the kind of point we were discussing earlier about to what degree should we worry about democratic erosion and the rise of more far right violence, some uh, far left violence. And, you know, given American history, the idea of a rising kind of ethno nationalist or white supremacist movement is is both plausible in the sense that we have a lot of history of that and and at the same time also maybe less plausible now because there's this growing body of evidence that in fact an increasing number of whites are much more aligned with racial sympathy right. than with uh, anti racial antipathy and so that's i think a really important difference between now and the 1960s is we see large majorities of the country, uh, even among Republicans, saying what Officer Chauvin did was wrong. Um, and even when people are condemning violent protests, they uh, are often saying, I sympathize or understand why people are angry and why they're marching. And that reflects a kind of sea change among white attitudes that's not uniform or universal, but does reflect an important shift and does should give us some hope that the idea that there might be a kind of resurgence of uh, a kind of Jim Crow politics, while it is present to a degree already in, in a lot of the policies Trump has endorsed, is not actually supported by a majority of the country, right? Trump doesn't win a majority of the vote um, right. and is currently trailing in polls. And so so it, it, it's both you know, a real threat and you look at things like immigration policy or uh, attacks on the census um, or attacks on voting rights. But it's also something where whether it's protests or courts, there does, there has been a really vigorous counter mobilization. And it's not clear that reflects the main of, of the American uh, populace. 
Right. I think it gets back to the point about social media being kind of a hall of mirrors showing us the worst of people, you know, and seeing the loudest, most aggressive people. You know, I've done, you know, I'm in a good amount of pro-Trump groups and just see horrible things. But I also recognize that those are a, while they're, they're most, the most vociferous, you know, extreme Trump supporters, they also represent a small number of percentage of, you know, even amongst Trump supporters. I, I know Trump supporters and they are not like the people I see in Facebook in other words, but I feel like the hall of mirrors that social media has created is like everyone. Some people think that all Trump supporters are like that. And that even within that group, there's people that are like kind of non-political or they just vote for Trump because he's a Republican candidate. They're, they're getting skewed news where they only see the best of Trump and the worst of liberals and their news bubbles. So I think, you know, even though I have uh, various worst case Trump fears, I I also am not on the extreme end of, of feeling like we're in, you know, Nazi Germany or something. Right. I just feel like, you know, there's, there's various uh, parts on the spectrum where you can be more afraid or less and probably on like the seven out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's, uh, one thing that can be confusing about using, you know, Nazi Germany as the reference category is that, that, that there, it's a continuum and democratic erosion can look like Hungary or the Philippines mm, yeah. or Turkey or, um, any number of countries that are, you know, still have elections, still have, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, something of a free press, but maybe that's diminishing in places like uh, the Philippines. They're now, you know, arresting broadcasters under bogus charges. It's a more slow um, death. But if you control the state and the courts, like that, you can slowly erode the degree to which a society is a free society. Um, but right. as some political scientists have shown, most people, most of the time, are primarily concerned with, you know, are my kids safe? Are they getting an education? Do I have a paycheck? Am I, uh, you know, <laughs> am I at risk of a pandemic? And, um, and so the kinds of things that you or I might be concerned about in terms of civil liberties are are often not most people's primary concerns. And that means that even semi-authoritarian or, you know, kind of weak democracies can be comfortable places to live. And, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, not so fun if your kid is pulled out of his bed at night by, uh, you know, military or, you know, vigilantes, but that's rare enough that a lot of people make do. That's, I think, I think the, the more realistic kind of fear about what could happen in the United States is that it's the vulnerable we just, people. Yeah. There's sort of erosion, democratic erosion over time, and that that poses uh, uh, a larger threat. But it doesn't. It, we don't. We don't just converge to Nazi Germany. It's more a bunch of things we think of as sacrosanct mm-hmm. become less so. Yeah, which I think has already happened, and I think will continue to happen if Trump is reelected. Yeah. You had written a piece a couple months ago where you said that initially you thought the George Floyd responses, uh, post-George Floyd responses, resembled more of the late 60s civil rights protests that were more aggressive and, and violent in the wake of MLK being assassinated. You know, a little bit later, you said that the protest, the George Floyd protest, turned into more something like the, the early 60s civil rights protests that were more peaceful and more effective. And so you seem to be pretty optimistic in the sense that you, you saw a lot of positive things happening, a lot of positive changes happening. And, I, and I'm wondering, do you still feel as optimistic as, as when you wrote that piece? So I think it's helpful. It's a good question. I think it's helpful to think about, you know, what is a violent event, right? And what is a nonviolent protest? And and often these things are very complicated. You know, there might be 
thousands of people out on the street and some broken windows or a car lit on fire. And if, you know, if if 2% of the people engage in violence, is it a violent event? Is it a peaceful event? And so in the initial period, there were lots of peaceful protesters and some protester initiated violence. And the news media was very focused as it often is on, on the kind of more dramatic violent episodes. Um, But very quickly, the events became overwhelmingly peaceful. And so there was one study that uh, looked at, um, again, approximately 10,000 events in the U.S. and found that 93% of them were totally peaceful, 7% have some protester-initiated violence, and a very small number have anything really significant. So if we think about thousands of events and uh, really just a handful that stand out in our mind as having protester violence like Minneapolis or Portland, um, and again, in cases where there's also significant state repression as part of that escalation, it, I think, has been consistent with my kind of reading um, a couple months ago, which is that overwhelmingly these events have been peaceful. Overwhelmingly, that's how the public understands them. And that means that these are seen in these kind of two competing narratives more as a claim for rights and less as a kind of, con- uh, you know, an issue of crime. And Clearly, uh, the president has gone to great lengths to try and highlight the protests in criminal terms. Um, but in the context of a recession, in the context of a pandemic, you know, also importantly, uh, in a context where he is often somebody perceived not as a source of calm, but as a source of chaos himself, it doesn't seem to have moved the public to his side. And so I think that does suggest that this looks more like 1964, a sympathetic movement um, and a candidate in the case of, um, uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting now, uh, who runs on, uh, on Law and Order in 1964, I referenced him earlier. Oh, um, uh, Goldwater. Uh, yeah, thank you. That it's not, you know, we, people don't trust Trump as a source of calm and that's, that's hurting him. Two other just quick things around kind of how this is playing out in the election. Um, one is the country is so polarized and people basically, I mean, you know, we've had the Trump show for almost four years now. And actually, if you count the campaign, more than four years and people are just, you know, they've made up their minds. There's just not a lot of people who are undecided about Donald Trump. So new information, you know, an event where there's violence in Portland just doesn't move the needle that much because people already have a pretty strong impression of Donald Trump. And that makes it much harder for him to kind of try and mobilize a new thread or a new issue because it's just, you know, about half the country is done with him and uh, about 40% loves him. So there's still some people in the middle, but 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 you, you, it's hard to win an election if half the country is uh, is is already um you know, kind of fed up. And so that, that I think is another really big factor is this combination of partisanship and people having already made up their minds about Trump. And so protests matter, but in some ways they matter more for people sort of saying, well, okay, yeah, I I care about racial injustice or I don't, and that's going to influence my vote. Um, But the people who are really concerned about law and order were largely in his camp already. So it doesn't, just doesn't seem to be moving people in the way that it did in the sixties. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. I, 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 I'm in pro-Trump groups, and I'm on the pro-Trump or the Trump email list, and they have played it, used this stuff so much, and I, I kind of wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm worried that these things affect more, you know, some middle of the road people more than, you know, a lot of people might think. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I got an email at one point when um, there was a wave, this is very early on, where there were some supermarkets set on fire. And a young man said, you know, my, my sister works at a supermarket and I worry about her, but I also am concerned about police violence. And, you know, what, what do you recommend? And that's somebody who's, you know, cross pressured, right? Thinking about rights and thinking about the threat of uh, crime. That is somebody who might go either way if, if, if Trump's promise of uh, law and order is compelling. But that's, I mean, I think part of what's been interesting is that Biden in some ways seems to be the candidate who's winning on being the candidate of order more than Trump. And so in a weird kind of way, it's almost an inverse, it's, it's the reverse of the 1968 case. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and where the Democrat is perceived as the, as the more credible provider of order that could change. And I think you're right that, that there are absolutely some voters who move and, and if there were a particularly high profile event, you know, a week before the election, that would have, you know, there, you know, if you could, if this is going to be an election that could be decided as it was in 2016 on, a, you know, one or two percentage points. And so that can tip an election, particularly if it's, you know, in a critical swing state uh, in the electoral college. So it clearly is contingent and, and things can move. But the general pattern has been that this has been an incredibly stable race, even as all sorts of things have happened. Well, I will try to remain optimistic. Dr. Wiseau, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Is there anything you want to mention about work that you're working on now or uh, ways to contact you? I just want to thank you, Zach, for having me. And uh, and you know, if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, I'm at, at O-W-A-S-O-W-O-W-A-S-O on uh, Twitter. And uh, yeah, grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation. Hope you enjoyed this talk. You can read more about the People Who Read People podcast at readingpokertells.video. If you enjoyed this episode, much appreciated if you leave me a rating or a review on the platform you listen on, if possible. I don't make any money on this podcast, so if you can share it on your social media to spread the word about it, much appreciated as well. Thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies.